Welcome to How They Get Stuff Done, where we ask successful people about the productivity habits behind their success. Side effects of listening to this show may include elevated levels of motivation, acute feelings of inspiration, and lasting improvements to your productivity. Now, here's your host, Peter Akis. Hey, folks. Today, I'm speaking with Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is a former software developer who is on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He is the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of the Ditching Hourly podcast, and he writes a daily newsletter on pricing for independent professionals. Jonathan has also written a number of books, he offers a coaching program, and he runs live group courses. Phew! I found Jonathan a few years ago when I was first learning about the world of online business. At the time, I was pursuing a business idea that didn't end up going anywhere. More on that later in the episode. But while doing research, I discovered Jonathan's ideas about how to run a service-based business, and those ideas blew my mind. In our discussion, Jonathan and I cover why marketing isn't bullshit, the role that aligned incentives play in building trust with clients, and I will add, with your employer as well, what Jonathan's daily workflow is like, and much more. Oh, and um, Karl Marx makes an appearance. Enjoy the show. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, right away, right out of the gate, I'm going to hit you with one of your tweets. Okay, so this is something you said, and I want you to explain what this is. Mm -hmm. You wrote not too long ago on Twitter, I feel like 80% of my job is demonstrating to developers that marketing is not bullshit. Now... (laughs) We have people listening who are not developers, um, but a lot of people with that, you know, rational kind of brain. Um, So I think people are going to appreciate the answer. So can you explain why marketing is not bullshit? Well, I know why they think it is bullshit. Yeah, we start there. (laughs) Yeah, because marketing that you notice, usually you're noticing it because it's terrible marketing. That sort of pushy, persuasive, all about me. Hey, let me tell you how great I am. And maybe spam. they send spam uh, unsolicited spam emails that are like a mile long with a million links or they're doing outreach on LinkedIn and just they're just takers they want to take 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 and people they and so people see that and they don't like it of course because who likes being interrupted with spam and then but and then they're like and that's what marketers do and my answer to that is look, no that's what terrible lazy marketers do <laughs> good marketers do stuff that doesn't feel at all like that. It feels more like free education and you don't tend to notice it or you certainly, even if you are noticing it, you don't generally think of it as marketing if you're not in the marketing space. So yeah, I mean, I I think that that's why it has a bad rap because there's so many people and they're so visible that that do bad marketing. So you just, everyone kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater. And then they're like, how come I don't get any leads and it's like, because you're not doing any good marketing. And of, of course, like, why would you get leads if you're not doing any kind of, if you're not coming to the market and saying, hey, I made something for you. Yeah, that reminds me of the dudes who will send me emails and it's like, hi, we are such and such web agency in like, I don't know, Bangalore or whatever, right? And we offer SEO and web design and web development and anything you could possibly use. Are you interested in, you know, buying our services or making use of our services? <laughs> like, right. obviously I'm not, it's a terrible pitch, right? Um, so, okay, so that's bad marketing. H- how did you discover that marketing is important, by the way? Can, is there a story there? Uh, how did I discover it was, I sort of backed my way into it. So when I was working at 
my last job job, I was the VP of a uh, dev shop. We did FileMaker development. We were very well known for it. Mm. And and I observed that the phone would just ring. People would be like, hey, uh, we want to talk about us giving you some money. <laughs> you know, we want to hire you to do something that we know that you're good at. And I also observed that the reason that the phone would magically ring was that the owner of the company was famous. Hmm. He spoke at the conference. He had written a very popular book on the subject. He um, was uh, had a monthly column in the trade publication, which was a physical magazine that came out once a month. And before all of that, he used to do kind of like, a, you know, this would have been, geez, in the 90s or something. He would answer questions on a forum that was kind of like a precursor to Stack Overflow where he just helped people uh, with their questions about this software product. Educating. So, yeah, he's just out there helping people at scale for free. And, you know, all of those things that we just that I just talked about, those were, I mean, you get paid for a book, but you're not going to make money off a book like that directly. Mm. And you get maybe you get paid to speak at a conference, but that's not the point. Those are all that's all basically all free assistance uh, to a, a group of people for whom it is extremely relevant. They totally care. They would love it if somebody would teach them more about this thing that they care about and they know they're not great at or they know they could get better at. And I, I, I connected those two dots. I, I would have never called it marketing. I would have said. I, I wouldn't have even thought of it that way or characterized it that way. I was like, you know, if I was going to run a business like this or when I did finally go solo, I was just going to copy Chris, hmm. write and speak, write and speak, write and speak. And I didn't realize that that I didn't think of it like marketing. It just seemed like to me, it seemed like, oh, well, these are these are revenue streams. Like I'm going to get paid to speak and I'm going to get paid, you know, for people who buy my book. But and that's true. But those numbers are so, they're, they're rounding error compared to how much you make from actually building software and doing consulting. So it's not, it's like, yes, you get paid, but really it's, you're really helping people for free there. And so yeah. you saw this, right? You, you at the time didn't realize maybe it was actually marketing. So how come that you eventually realized, oh, wow, this is a marketing activity. This is what I need to get good at. And how, how did you actually get good at it? Because I'm assuming you're coming from a software development world. I mean, it's not, it's not you know, the stereotypical software developer who's like kind of a nerdy guy hidden in the back corner. It's not really like that anymore these days, right? Or at least probably at many places, it's not like that. But you have that idea. So um, coming from kind of that angle, how did you end up learning how to do marketing? Well, it uh, it occurred to me, well, here was, here was my sort of, uh, you know, come to the light moment. Uh, I eventually stopped doing both of those things because I had, for years, I was, you know, out speaking probably once a month at conferences, mm. definitely 10 a year. And I wrote a stream of books, you know, one every year or two. And at a certain point, I had a real big hit with one of the books. It was like translated into seven languages, published with oh, O'Reilly, wow. which is a huge software uh, uh, publisher software title publisher. And uh, right around the same time, we had our second child. And I was like, oh, you know what? I don't want to travel around anymore and leave mm -hmm. my wife home with two little kids. And so I stopped doing the speaking. And then I, my next contract came in, uh, publishing contract came in, and I signed it. And I took the advance and stuff. And I was like, you know what? I can't make myself do this. This just feels like hamster wheel. I'm writing the same book over again. It's like a little bit different, but updated for the new software. And I was, <laughs> yeah, I was just getting tired of it. So I stopped writing books. And lo and behold, 18, month later, 18 months later, I was like, huh, I haven't gotten a lead in a while. That, I wonder if those two hmm. things are connected. <laughs> and I had sort of forgotten that 
or maybe not forgotten completely, but but uh, without knowing it, I was copying my previous employer, my last employer, mm-hmm. and it worked. But then I think at a certain point, I was like, well, now I'm done. I don't have to do that anymore because now I get tons of leads from big companies who are like literally coming up to me as I walk off stage and giving me their card like we need to talk. And somehow I just, I, 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 it wasn't completely connected. It was like, wait, now I planted this garden and it will grow forever. But no, it won't. It'll grow for a year or two, right. but then it will die. And I, I let that happen, which was, you know, for, you know, just being dumb. And uh, that's when, that's when I was like, oh, you have to keep doing this. Uh, and then I, I just started to get more interested in that. And at the same time, I was getting less interested in software. And I, I shifted gears into helping people run software businesses instead of writing software for money. Yeah. No, and that's, and that's fascinating because it, it took a while, right? It sounds like there wasn't one moment years, where six you were years. Like, bing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so now that you're helping other people with it, you know, I imagine you're also seeing for other people that it sometimes takes time to get a sense of, you know, marketing. Yep. There's a, I, you know, I have people start slow, just pick one or two things in a perfect world scenario. Like in my coaching program, I'll, I'll have people pick one writing thing, one writing channel and one speaking channel. Mm. And, and I, I mean that very broadly. So like the writing channel could be social media. It could be like being active on LinkedIn. Uh, it could be being active on Medium, having a blog, having a mailing list. Uh, and the speaking thing, uh, I think right now the best bang for the buck, especially post-COVID or hopefully post-COVID, uh, is podcasting. It's just it's just great. Um, it really exploded last year. It, it seems to, every couple of years I feel like, wow, podcasting is just quantum leap over yeah. previous years. It keeps doing it, though. And there's tons of celebrities on there now, so average people are more familiar with podcasts and podcast apps. Uh, so from the comfort of your bedroom, you can you can help people at scale for free without having to fly anywhere and just get that practice of speaking to an audience, even if you can't see them, even if it's not live. And it's a, a critical skill for attracting clients for whom you would be a really good fit. Because when you hear someone talking, you can tell if you're going to click with them or if you're like, ah, that person's a little too woo-woo or too aggressive or or not aggressive enough. So it's a great trust building, audience building exercise to be at some kind of speaking thing, whether it's podcasting or real conferences or virtual conferences or workshops or some webinars. So I just like, I don't, I don't want people to do like have a YouTube channel and Instagram and a Twitter and a LinkedIn and like just be racing from platform to platform, creating content. It's more like pick one and be, make it as frictionless as possible Pick the one that you're most familiar with, you're most comfortable with, the easiest possible one for you, and just use that as your platform. And don't worry about all the other ones that you could be doing. Just focus on those and start to have a conversation with the audience that you, you know, seek to serve. I see Seth Godin's book on the shelf behind you. Oh, it's that's like, right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, who do you want to help and how can you help them for free at scale as much as humanly possible? That To me, that's marketing. It's just like helping people for free. And eventually people are going to, you know, some people are going to say like, you know, this is amazing. I've been listening to your podcast for a year. I read your book or I've been reading your, your mailing list every day. And I want to find out more about how you could accelerate my progress if we were working together directly. And that, you know, it's, it's like, it's like magic. The phone just rings. If you're out there tending to the garden every day, the tomatoes will keep coming. Uh, But if you stop, you know, 
they won't. <laughs> they won't. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's it's totally true. You know, I, I've been doing YouTube for a while now, but even more so the podcast, I've um, been doing it for a little bit. And I think because podcasting is a l- little more intimate as well, you're like in someone's ear and they're probably listening carefully. Um, Less distracted. You do get yeah. people who are just like, how can I pay you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is so funny. Sometimes it's a very, they don't even know what they want. They're just like, I, I like you. I feel like you have useful stuff to say. Like, how can I give you money to get more of you? Um, so, so you've defined marketing very broadly, right? Helping people for free, educating them, you know, which is, it's a long-term strategy. Um, who should think about marketing? Should only people who are currently independent service professionals be marketing? Or if you are someone who's maybe building a career in, even in a corporate place, should you be putting on a marketing hat or is marketing really something is a business owner should do this? Uh, I don't think about career path stuff, so I'm not sure. I feel like marketing is a general soft skill when done correctly. So I think it probably would serve you, but I don't really think about that. So what I would say, I would flip it around and say, if you have a business or you're planning to start a business, you better be thinking about this. You better Mm -hmm. be thinking about marketing. If in fact, that is my litmus test for whether or not someone should be an employee or be an entrepreneur or business owner. If you are not interested in helping your clients or your customers, then you should just stick to employment. So like if you're if you're like a sick Go developer, like you're amazing at Go and you know everything about it, but you don't want to be bothered with sales. You don't want to be bothered with, with answering questions over email or on Stack Overflow or something. If you don't want to be bothered with all of those things that I would categorize as like good marketing, then you're going to fail. Like... You're not going to, the odds of you getting enough referrals uh, of just like, you know, you, you somehow landed a, a freelance gig and you crushed it and they spontaneously referred you to someone else. That is at best an extremely slow path to growth. So it doesn't, that doesn't build for the long term. So if you're not interested in understanding what good marketing is and being able to, execute against that whether you delegate it or not is a separate question but if you're not willing to devote some real resources to that then just get a job that's like fine not everybody wants to learn how to do marketing but i mean think of it i mean marketing we think of it as just like this term maybe we don't think about the root of it but it's like it's about coming to the market it's about saying like (laughs) i'm gonna take my tomatoes down to the market if you just leave your tomatoes at home you're you're depending on the market to come to you, which is super arrogant, by the way. It's a bad bet. It's a bad bet. Yeah. So you, unless your tomatoes are something else, no one is going to leave the market where they could get other tomatoes and come to your farm and pick them up there. That's inconvenient for them. So, I mean, could you have the world's best tomatoes? I mean, I saw a $50,000 strawberry or something on YouTube one time. (laughs) So maybe you've got a kind of destination tomato. (laughs) There's a show titled destination tomato. Um, but the odds are that you don't have that. The odds are that you you are yeah. not that. So, um, and as long so if you're if you're open to the idea of spending a couple of, you know some number of hours per week or some amount of money to market to, to go to market to bring your thing to the people who want it and need it, if you're not willing to do that, then get a job and then you won't have to do it. And the, the work will magically show up every morning on your desk and then you just can do it and get a salary. And that's a perfectly valid path too. Yeah. I like what you said 
about going to the market, but also thinking about solving problems for people. And this is one of the insights that I had when I first discovered your work, thinking in terms of what are people's problems and what are the solutions that they're looking for, right? And I remember mm -hmm. at some point you talked about this thing called the why conversation, um, which I really enjoyed. So maybe maybe you can briefly summarize what is, what is a why conversation, and then you know I can uh, finish my point. Sure. So uh, real quickly, if you do project work that you don't know how much to charge. So someone comes to you and say, hey, we'd like you to do some stuff for us. We understand that you do this stuff. So let's say it's Rails development. So like, oh, we understand that you do Rails development. We know we need a Rails app. Could we talk? So you say, sure, I, I do that all the time. Let's talk. So that, and they're going to have some project, probably a punch list of features that they want added to an existing application or baseline features for a new application. And they'll brain dump about that to you for 20, 25 minutes, at which point I would pivot into the why conversation. So I would say, this is great. I've got five pages of notes here. This is all very helpful. Um, along the way, if I was building something like this, I would have to make a hundred decisions a day, maybe even more than that per day about if I should do it this way or that way. And if you could share with me the bigger business context of what you're hoping to achieve longer term from this, it will decrease the odds of me building it in a way that won't support the longer term goals. So basically, can we back up a sec and I can understand the business context that this will launch into? so that I can build it better. And the, a good client, a good prospect will always say, yeah, let's talk about that. A bad one will be like, why do you need to know that? Just do, just give us a price for what we told you to do. So if they're looking for an order taker, it's probably not what you want. Uh, but if they're willing to, to get bigger picture with you, talk about their bigger business goals, then the framework that I use for those questions, I call the why conversation, other people call it other things. But it has three main categories of why question. Why this, why now, and why me? Mm. And the why this is sort of summed up by the question, why not not do this? Why is this such a big deal? Why don't just like leave things the way they are? And they'll be like, well, we can't do that. Well, how oh, come? Oh, no, no. <laughs> we, can't do, we can't not do it because if we don't, you know, we see the writing on the wall. Amazon's coming into our space or something. Uh, and then the why now thing's the same thing. Couldn't, couldn't you put this off for a few months? You know, why do this now? Couldn't you, shouldn't we study this more before we decide whether or not to pull the trigger on a big risky project like this? You know, we could easily spend a half a million dollars on a build like this. Why Why do it now? Let's maybe study it and it'll be lower risk. And we're like, no, 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 we can't wait. This is an emergency. We should have called you six months ago. So you're like, wow, okay, they, I agree that they need to do this. I agree that this is the right solution. I agree that they need to do it right now, or at least I understand why they think they need to. And then the last question, which is the hardest for people to actually do, is why hire someone expensive like me to do it when you've got all these other options? You could go to Fiverr, you could get an intern, you could have your cousin Vinny do it, you could hire a full-time employee, it'll be cost less than this project's gonna cost. So why not do that? And what they do is they give you all this information about why they can't do cheaper stuff later. And you can take all that information, and this is in service of doing a better job for them, delivering a better outcome, and getting more customer satisfaction you can take all that information that they gave you and put it straight into your proposal and come up with a price based on what it's probably worth to these people and then reverse engineer a scope for each one of the one of the the levels that you put in the proposal yeah no and and we're going to talk about that but first i, I just <laughs> want to share why i love this bit because this reminds me of what used to happen when I was a consultant. So the first couple of years after I graduated, I worked as an economic consultant or litigation consultant. Basically, law firms have big clients and they're in some shit 
And so the law firms don't want to run the analysis themselves, read all the documents, so they outsource it to a firm like where I worked, and we were the consultants, and we would you know, supply expertise, analyze data, whatever. Um, and one of the key skills I learned there is, is exactly the same thing. So I'm not, I wasn't writing a proposal for anybody, but it's always like, oh, great, you're telling me you want me to make this chart. Well, why do you want me to make this chart? If you tell me why you want this chart, it will be a better chart for you, right? So right. like, yeah. yeah, and it's like, please let me think with you is what you're saying, right? Don't just let me be like hands doing what, you, you know, because I would probably do it poorly. Um, mm -hmm. And you become so much more valuable. So, and so, so I very quickly learned that like, if you want to be a good consultant, you really just have to ask people why a lot and then do some basic thinking and then, and then you'll be fine. Um, yep. Okay, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Um, and so I just don't really think that's a great approach to life. So if you're not used to doing this, it might be awkward though, right? It could be that mm -hmm. um, even when you have a job, if like someone is constantly telling you what to do, you may feel uncomfortable, you know, pushing back too much on your boss. And I can imagine people who are, let's say like, you know, service, service provider, you write like PHP for people. Okay, that's like your skill, right? But really what you're doing is you're solving problems for people. But when you're new, you may feel kind of uncomfortable, right? Getting into those things because you've thought of yourself as a developer. That's been your identity for a long time. So... How do you, what do you tell people when they're, they're feeling a little uncomfortable at getting into these kinds of conversations? Yeah, I mean, it happens naturally when, when someone is still feeling like their identity is, uh, I write PHP I write applications, yeah, like I write code, uh, or I write good code, or I write good Rails apps or whatever, when that's still their identity and they're not, uh, they're not annoyed by the fact that people are telling them the wrong thing to do all the time, hmm. then it's probably fine for them to just keep, you know, just doing what they're told. They're still got a little bit of that employee mindset and you can get by on that. You can still charge enough money to get by on that. But at a certain point you start to get frustrated that they're not telling you the right thing to do or the project is getting shelved. Hmm. Like it never launches and this frustration starts to come up. That's the natural, you can force it. You can, you can make the leap sooner, but that's the natural organic inflection point between thinking of yourself as someone who writes PHP versus someone who knows how to write PHP. And then once you start thinking about your know-how instead of the do stuff part of your identity, like I do stuff, I write PHP, you can come up with all sorts of new products and services that address the needs that you want to address or that you'd, that you'd, you'd feel like you were having a better impact and delivering more value if you were allowed to talk about the things that are a little bit more upstream, the decisions that get made before they normally hire you. You know, like there's a, there's a phase where the client decides what they're going to do. And once they've decided that and they, they come to you, they don't want to relitigate their decisions with somebody who they perceive as a builder. Just build the thing. We already decided what to do. Why are you asking us these questions? And to me, that would be at a certain point in your career, that's not a great fit. If you're, you know, a consultant or a freelancer or a contractor or whatever you want to call yourself, you want to get involved in the earlier decisions and it requires some experience. So you actually know what you're talking about. But if you're working with clients who are not experts at what you do, it doesn't take very many years for you to be way better at it than they are. Right. Because they know how to sell pizza. You know how to build a website. Even if you only have two years, or even a year of experience building websites, you're going to be way better at it than, than they are. So once they come to you and, you know, again, if you're uncomfortable with it, it could be that you actually aren't that good yet. You're just brand new and you're not really ready to consult or give advice or understand their business goals and things like that. You might just be kind of, you know, brand new. 
Um, so that might be why you're uncomfortable. Another reason why you might be uncomfortable is because your positioning is awful and they see you as a pair of hands to be told what to do. They see you like an employee yeah. or, um, you know, or you're working with clients who essentially know how to do what you do, like a Valley startup that already has 20 PHP developers and they're not impressed by the fact that you've been doing PHP for a year or two. <laughs> so if you ask that, if you say to them, well, why would you want it built like this? They're going to be like, get out of here. You know, don't, like we're not talking about that now. We're not having that conversation. So they just see you there. You're in the friend zone and you're trying to like be a romantic interest. It, right. it, it's it's not impossible to make that pivot, but it's pretty hard. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons why why it, it can be uncomfortable that are personality driven, but also could be positioning driven. Like you're just not perceived as the go to person. So why would they trust you? Yeah. And so one of the things that I love about this frame is related to one of your favorite phrases, which is hourly billing is nuts, which I want to get into a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember when I you know, was first discovering you consuming a lot of your free content, I, I came upon this idea that you shouldn't do hourly billing. Now, at the time, I wasn't doing anything that required me to do any hourly billing, but I liked the idea so much that I like wanted to soak up all the knowledge. Um, and I liked it because it's all about incentives. And the story that you were just telling me is also um, in a way about incentives, right? Because if you're doing a transaction, if you're going to the market, you're doing a transaction. One person wants something, the other person wants something. Now, it's really helpful for your transaction if you're both wanting the same thing, right? Or at least if you're your incentives are aligned. And this is something that having studied economics in college really appealed to me. I was like, oh, this makes sense. You know, this is how I learned the things should work. Um, and, and this is what you do in marketing, right? You're this is what you're advocating. You're saying, go talk to people, figure out what they want, and then like help them get that thing. So now you're both trying to achieve the same thing as opposed to, you know, they want feature and you want money, which is like different things. Now you're not aiming for this for the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so hourly billing is really related to this, right? And, and, and I'm sure you can briefly explain why that is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, well, to, to there's a, probably a dozen reasons I could rattle off, but just to key off what you're bringing up is that the financial, financial incentives are misaligned, which is to say, if you're paying me by the hour, I am incentivized to take longer. And the client never wants it to take longer. They want it to happen as fast as possible because of not only the amount of money they're paying me and they have to pay me more and more and more, the slower I am, but there's also the opportunity cost of not launching as quickly as they would like or whatever the, whatever the benefit is that they want to um, uh, receive from the engagement, the longer it takes, the more it costs them. In other words, you know, like, like if they were going to get more sales when you're done, then they got to wait an extra six months for the more sales to start happening. So if you are incentivized to be slow, then that's not good, you know, because it, it because financial incentives do affect behavior. They affect your thinking. They affect, and, and once your thinking is affected, it affects the words that you use. And once you're talking about things in a different way, it affects your, uh, your actual behavior. So the, the story I tell about this is that the first time, I, you know, I went solo, I left that firm that I was talking about earlier, uh, I had the epiphany that hourly billing was nuts while I was there. Then I went solo to kind of prove the model uh, on my own without risking anybody else's business. And on one of the very first projects I was on, I proposed something and I was planning on building the whole thing. I was planning on writing every single line of code and, uh, and, and I gave a fixed price. That's like the, the, the outcome of a value-based uh, value-based pricing is you come up with a fixed price for a project. It's a way of calculating a fixed price. And I gave them a fixed price. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second. 
there's a piece of this that's going to be really complicated. There was one piece that was really complicated. It had a lot of mm. user interface. It was very custom. It was going to be hard. And I was like, I'll bet you this exists. I'll bet you there's a plugin that already does this because it's it was a very straightforward kind of need. It was the kind of need that lots of people would have. Anybody yeah. that ran a facilities situation would would have this need. Sure enough, there was a plugin that cost, as I recall, seven hundred and fifty bucks to buy this plugin, and they were paying me thousands of dollars for the you know the fixed price was in the thousands. And I was like, I was like, well, what if I went back to him and I was like, what if I just buy this plugin? And they'll so now the with the financial incentives aligned. They they get their interface they needed faster, much faster, because I was like, this is going to I thought this would probably take me two weeks, but it's looking more like this could take me six weeks, mm. which I didn't like because that I'm not making any more money with right. those extra four weeks. So I was like, why don't I just spend seven hundred and fifty bucks, save myself four weeks, and then this guy can have his solution in a week instead of six weeks. So even faster than I could have hoped to build it for myself. And the thing that's radical about this story is that if I had been billing by the hour, in a million years, it never would have occurred to me to look for an alternative solution. There's no incentive for you to do so. There is no incentive for me to do so. It's not like I'm unethical and I want to be slow. There's no incentive for me to look for a faster solution. There's no incentive for me to buy a faster computer. There's no incentive for me to build a code library that I can reuse over and over. There's no incentive for me to create boilerplate or any kind of pre-work that I can repurpose across clients because I'm just hurting my income potential. So it's not like I'm trying to be slower. My brain just doesn't think of something that is going to negatively impact my income. It yeah. it would it just it's nuts <laughs> to to coin a phrase. It is nuts. <laughs> but the funny thing is, right? I, I like I'm so on board with this and anybody who who spends any time thinking about this should be on board. It just makes no sense. Someone wants an outcome and they're willing to pay a certain price for it, they should not give a hoot about how you get them that outcome. I mean, maybe the how is important for future code base, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah, but like, minor, as long as the outcome is exactly the same, yeah. they should not care. Um, yet people care. It's weird. Like, I have bookkeepers who do my bookkeeping for me, and they insist on charging by the hour. I would much rather they not. I would much rather they say, we're going to charge you this much per quarter or per year or whatever, and we're going to offer you these services. And I'd be like, fine, I will pay that. But no, they don't do that. They refuse. I, I mean, you know, what, what are they going to do? They're going to charge you by the hour. I'm g Every quarter, I get this nice specification of what they put 2.25 hours into or whatever. And like, yeah, I really don't care. Right. Um, so why I do don't people care. do this? Why do people feel that it is so weird to come up with a price for fixed work? You know, I mean, that's a big question. You could you could blame Karl Marx. I mean, he the, the sort of labor theory of value that value is created based on how much labor went into a thing. Hmm. It's very, very sort of labor-centric view of value creation but people should like, suffer for money right and like that's where value comes from and, and i and in the time period that he existed it did kind of make sense because it was like early industrial revolution mm. and and he was really fighting for factory workers and saying like the machine's not the value the people are the value but really the whole thing is just i, I don't know if it's i don't know if it would have been more true then or less true then or or the same then it doesn't and it doesn't matter but i think that that is that has really sunk in and people people have this um people who are self-centric i don't mean selfish i just mean they're they're not oriented on others they're just mm. more oriented on themselves they, they're not as empathetic they don't they don't put themselves in other people's shoes 
the justification for their hourly rate or this invoice that they sent is like, well, I put in the time, you owe me the money. Yeah. And there's no there's no consideration to whether or not the client got any meaningful benefit from it. Like, is the client right. better off or are they worse off now that they don't have that money? And it's, it's, it's a self-centric or self-centered worldview that I put in the time so you owe me the money. If you asked me to, to do the wrong thing or you should have hired someone else, that's not my problem. Yeah. And I, I, uh, that, that phenomenon is very common. And right. it, but it's also extraordinarily limiting. Like it yeah. sounds like self-preservation, but in fact, it is death for your business because you are in the service business. If you do any of these kinds of things we're talking about, you're in the service business and your product, your actual product is not code or copy or features. It's customer satisfaction. Yeah. If they are satisfied at the end, then they are going to hire you again. They are going to recommend you to other people. They're going to give you glowing testimonials. So the way I see it, and the, and the big thing that, 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 you know, the boot that kicked me off the hourly billing wagon was I was having a terrible time delivering customer satisfaction. And I recognized finally that hourly billing was the reason. Mm. I, wasn't, I wasn't finding out in advance what was actually going to make the customer happy. I was just right. taking, taking the orders. These are the features they want. There was no pushback from me like, what, you know, let's say I could wave a magic wand and you had these features what happens next to help find out why they wanted them oh well then we're going to branch internationally or we're going to we're going to we're going to start being a SaaS instead of a service provider like there's always some business goal when you're talking to a business right. so since i wasn't finding those things finding those things out in advance i'm just driving around with a blindfold on doing my my best practices of driving and you know tracking saying, your hours <laughs> track yeah the meter turn the meter on and they say turn yeah. left turn right do a u turn uh, cut that guy off. You know, they're, they're telling me how to drive, but that's like having a child drive the car. It's like they, they don't, you know, if you're working with people who make pizza or shoes or, or, or something for a living, they're not an expert. They shouldn't be telling you what color the buttons should be. They shouldn't be telling you how many pages there should be. They should just be telling you what's the business case. What do your, what do we need to enable with your customers or, you know, the bigger picture business things. And then it, it's possible someone it's probably happened i'm sure i have an example of this where someone came in and they said we need this feature that feature the other and i said something like well why don't you just use dropbox like that does that and they'd be like wow okay let's look into that <laughs> and they're like oh i guess we don't need to build it from scratch we can just use right. dropbox or slack or Basecamp or something off the shelf and so and you know and if that if that gets them the benefit that they want then more power to them why should they pay me a half a million dollars to build Basecamp for them yeah, but this is where I think emotions come in, right? So I can see someone being an independent service provider. It doesn't matter if you're a software developer or like an accountant or whatever, right? And in this case, where you're telling them there's a simple software solution, it's much cheaper. It'll do the same work. You you might think if you have a very scarcity mindset, you right? You might think, oh, now I lost that customer, right? right. But what I'm hearing from you is that customer wasn't going to be happy with your service anyway because they were going to pay you a lot of money only maybe to later discover they could have paid less money, right? So it's like it's kind of a shitty experience from the seller's point of view. Well, there's, I think, two things to mention. One is that that those people will trust you forever. Mm. And I play a long game. I play the long game. That customer will thank you. If, if, if you're like, if, if a cheaper option is a better fit, like why not, right. why hire someone expensive like me? Why not do something cheaper? Then they should. If there's no yeah. answer to that question, then they should do something cheaper. 
And they will trust you as someone who tells them the truth, even at the cost of your own income. Totally. You know? I mean, and how else could you trust someone more, right? Like if I, like I like to go scuba diving, if I go into a dive shop or like, a, you know, where they're selling um, buoyancy control devices, BCDs, and I'm like, oh, this one looks cool. And they're like, okay, how many dives have you done? I'm like 50. They're like, no, no, this one's way too advanced for you. Don't buy it. Buy their cheaper one. I'll be like, wow, you could have made $200 more off me, but you didn't. You know, I'm coming yeah. back here, right? Precisely. So. Precisely. Uh, so, yes. So if you're playing in the long game, that you just cr- built a very strong trust bond with that client and the next time they come around or the next time they refer you to someone who does need what you do then it's going to be that much better of a referral the other thing is when you come into a situation with this sort of predetermination that what you're going to sell is you doing their books or you writing code for them or you creating a, a white paper whatever whatever the 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 task is that you do the deliverable that you normally sell if you come in as like the, uh, a hammer looking for nails, then you're you're not having the right conversation, which is like, what are you trying to achieve here? Maybe yeah. maybe you need a screwdriver. So so and that ties back to the you know if you think of yourself as your if your identity is uh, I build Rails apps, you need to switch it to I know how to build Rails apps, know how you want to fit know how in there. So when you talk to them you're talking about know-how and you don't know what you might sell to them. Like maybe they do, maybe they're definitely going to give you money. That still doesn't mean you know what you're going to sell them when you've switched to this mindset. Maybe they just need someone to coach their internal junior Rails developer and you can come up with some price that's agreeable to both of you, very profitable to both of you to get them where they need to go using your expertise instead of your hands, your brains instead of your hands. So it makes you much more open to uh, and flexible to offer different kinds of solutions to customers in different ways if you haven't already decided i need to convince them that this hammer is exactly what they need no matter what the problem is because then you're just pitching and trying to be persuasive and convincing them and doing all the bad marketing things yeah which is yeah go ahead yeah no this goes back to what you were saying earlier right it's like maybe you don't like to do these things. So there are probably people who like, they don't want to be coaching the junior developer, right? And Mm -hmm. so if you don't want to be doing that, I guess you have a problem. But, um, you know, I think you probably spent uh, most of your time thinking about people who work independently, right? Who independent service providers often selling to businesses. Um, But I, I think that this kind of stuff actually also applies in corporate environments or even just when you're an employee but it's not that corporate so here's why right i feel like there's a there's a fairness issue at play a lot of people are not comfortable with um charging a value-based price for example because they feel like no it's 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 not fair if i can do this work in five hours um you know like i should be only charging five hours worth of my time rather than thinking what is the value to the client right and it's like the you know benefit to you if you can do it faster right than than some other person who may take 50 hours but i think it's the same way for people who are employees you know, I, I remember listening to a podcast once and some dude was explaining he was working for one of the big four accounting firms and he figured out how to do his job in only like five hours a week. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And what does he do? What should he do? Right. I, I, yeah. I, I've heard the same, a similar story developer who automated himself out of a job. Should yeah. he quit? Like what, what's the, what's the moral or ethical thing to do in that situation? 
Exactly. And so when you think about it, there's just very few reasons like not to just keep taking the money because clearly the company values you. Otherwise, they wouldn't pay you that money. Right. So um, but I think people find that unfair. They just somehow think it's and maybe it is what you're saying. It goes back to the Protestant work ethic or something like you should only be getting paid if you suffer. Right. Oh. Right. And yeah. And to that point, if you don't. So I have a lot of people who I kind of categorize that kind of worldview as as uh, with this phrase which is if you only ever charge for the hard stuff you'll only ever be doing hard work yeah if you don't charge for the easy stuff you're doomed you're you are dooming yourself to a life of toil it's as if it's as if people have never experienced the crazy thing is like the opposite experience is in everybody's face every day you see the opposite experience every day with any kind of product sales. When you buy a product, you go into a cafe and you buy a coffee and you know, the, there's a, a cafe in the building I used to be in where it's like the owner was the only person, she, was, she ran the place. And you go in and I'd order a coffee and I'd give her the money, she'd give me the coffee and what happens? Mutual thank you. You both say thanks because you both are better off. She wanted the $5 more than she wanted that cup of coffee and I wanted the cup of the coffee more than I wanted the $5. It's mutual profit. If you don't understand the concept of mutual profit, you will always be linked to this toil for money model, which completely ignores wealth creation. It, it ignores like, like uh, life getting easier. Like life, life, you might think life stinks right now. Well, transport yourself back to the Middle Ages. <laughs> you know, it was a lot worse. I promise worse. you. Things get better over time because of this concept of mutual profit. So if you can find something that's very easy for you to do, and it's like a magic trick for someone else who wants it really badly, you nailed it, right? So the other story I tell is like, my wife can't stand oysters and I love them. So if somebody put a, a plate of oysters in front of her and said, you have to eat these, she would, she would pay anything. She, she would pay like anything to not have to do that. Meanwhile, I would pay to eat them. Yeah. So if you can find your oysters, so find the oysters. If you would just love to do this thing, whatever it is, and there's these people that hate doing it. Oh, I don't know, like marketing, for example. So if I find all these software developers who despise the idea of marketing, and I think it's fun because I see it differently than they do, then why not have that mutual profit? Why not have that mutual thank you? where they pay me some amount of money that feels fair to them, feels like acceptable for the results that they'll get from this to do this distasteful thing, this thing they find distasteful. If you can, the, the, and the bigger the delta between the, um, the, the expected outcome for them and like the ease for you, the, the bigger the profit for both parties. It's like, it goes both ways. There's nothing unethical about it. It's much more unethical to say, I think this will take me 10 hours and it ends up taking you 40 hours. And so they agreed to a fake price of whatever, $1,000, and they end up paying $4,000. Hourly billing leads to, has led in my world experience, personally and with students, hourly billing leads to much more unethical outcomes right. than value pricing because they have to agree to an estimate. It's not a price. And then they end up stuck, you know, 60 hours in, they've spent whatever, $6,000 with you, $12,000 with you, $20,000 with you. And it turns out 
uh, it's going to be harder than we thought, or, uh, you kept changing your mind. And, uh, you know, so they end up looking at faced with a decision like, well, we're 60 grand into this. Do we keep going or do we cut bait? It's a terrible, terrible position to put someone in. I think it's way more unethical to bill by the hour. Totally. And like, even on a smaller scale, this happens like with my bookkeepers too. I was like, how much are you going to charge me a year? They're like, oh, 6,000 euros. And I'm like, well, I guess I better believe you. Like, you know, (laughs) it it may take you twice the amount. And like, it's fine because the the amounts are like relatively small, you know what I'm saying? But it still feels weird. It still feels like they kind of promised that it was going to cost a certain amount. And now I'm thinking, what, what if they end up, you know, um, wanting to charge me 50% more is the boss going to say nah let's knock off you know 20% of those hours because it looks like it's too high or something like it's just weird you just get such such random stuff anyway that's a um, great just a just quick thing on that if you've ever eaten hours you already know so anyone listening to this if you've ever eaten an hour you already know that something's wrong with hourly or you wouldn't have eaten it yeah Totally true. I mean, seriously, like people listening who are who, who at all bill hourly or charge by the hours should go check out Jonathan's website, uh, which we'll make sure is in the show notes. Um, it's so, so one thing that you said is it, it helps for there to be a really big delta between the thing that you're good at and the thing that the other people want. And so mm-hmm. this is very closely related to the concept of picking a niche, right? You're picking a part of the market where you become highly skilled, highly knowledgeable relative to some other people. And, and I know you're a big fan of niching down, Jonathan. So yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll let you make the case for why niching down is important. Um, and then I'm going to see if I can hit you with a counterexample that maybe you can explain to me what's going sure. on. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think biggest, biggest possible picture, you need to stand out from the crowd. And that goes against our DNA. It goes against our evolution to want to stand out from the crowd because that equaled death when there were saber-toothed tigers around. But that is no longer the case. Now, death is being just one of many. Ignored. Yeah, you're just invisible. You need to become famous. You need to become famous in this little teeny tidal pool that is your market. And the easiest way to become famous or to become a big fish is to just pick a really small pond. It's the fastest, easiest, most straightforward way to do it. It's just one way. But it's the easiest one. It, it, it's the easiest to understand. It's the easiest to execute. If you could just get yourself to, it's, I shouldn't say easy. It's the simplest to execute. But some people make it hard because they're like, no, no, that will be throwing away opportunities or something. But it's very simple. You just pick some small group who stands to benefit the most from your area of expertise, whatever it is. And you speak directly to them using their lingo, using their terminology, using the words that they use to describe their pains and what keeps them up at night. And it's it's like if you don't do that, if you don't decide who you're talking to in your emails or on your podcast or in whatever, whatever, Twitter, whatever your marketing materials are, if you don't pick that language, then you end up with stuff like, we solve hard problems for smart people. Or, you know, and it's like... It doesn't click with anybody. It's like unisex haircuts. No one wants a unisex haircut. That's a barbershop or a stylist salon saying, we can do guys' haircuts and we can do gals' haircuts. Instead of being like like one of my favorite one of my favorite places, like we only do guys' haircuts. Executive hair, it's called. And yeah. it's like we do guys' haircuts. If you're a girl and you want a guy's haircut, come on in. But we don't do whatever i don't know i might be getting myself in hot water here but the the idea is if you if you don't make the decision who are we serving you end up with unisex haircut salon 
If you do pick who you're dealing with, then you can get really specific in your marketing with the language that you use to click with your buyers. Right. So for me, I've got a background in software development and I can like read, like when a dev comes along and they're in a particular situation, I can do something that's even more advanced than the why conversation called a cold read where I tell them what their problems are. And they're like, you read my mind. How did you know that? <laughs> I get it all the time. I get people reply to my daily email list and say like, I'm convinced that you have a camera in my office. <laughs> it's not because I have a camera in your office. It's because I picked a group right. really that I was already one of. So it's really easy for me to understand the, the motivations. Yeah. Um, and I can use language that not only identifies me as different from the crowd, not just one of many, but the one and only, the ditching hourly guy, and and helps them more. Because if I use their language, it can make the examples much more concrete and make it more likely that the light bulb is going to go on for them instead of talking about, I don't know, if I was talking about like supply chain complications right. or like negotiating with supply chain vendors. Like, it's like the principles might be the same, but if I'm talking about that, they're going to shut off because all of these words that they don't, they would have to look up that are irrelevant to what they're trying to do every day. So if you can reach in and, you know, as, as, as it has been said, join the conversation that's already going on in their head, that requires picking someone to write to, to speak to. And it feels like a paradox, like, well, if I focus on a small market, I'll get even fewer leads than I already get. But the exact opposite is true. It's like the smaller you get, the bigger the opportunity becomes. Yeah. And I, I love this idea so much. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like trying to start my first online business. And at the time I was quite dealing with like effects of severe burnout still, at the, but I only kind of knew that. So I was like, I'm going to try to start a business anyway. So the reason it didn't happen is like, not because it was a bad business idea, but um, what I noticed is I would do yoga a couple of times a week. It was part of like, you know, recovering from burnout. And I, I went to a bunch of different yoga studios. What do I see? A lot of the owners of yoga studios, um, usually dudettes, they would be very poor at follow-up. So they, they would get a new student. Um, they're like, have you fill out a whole form for liability reasons and whatever? So they want to know your address, your phone number, uh, your email address, whatever. Um, what's your birthday? Because they can send you a coupon on your birthday. Um, and then, so, so you'd go there once, or maybe you'd buy like a 10 class pass or whatever, and your 10 class pass would expire. They do nothing. And I'm like, what the hell is the matter with you? And at the time I was learning about email marketing. Um, I only knew a little bit about it, but I was like, they are sitting on such a large membership list of people who have taken one class at their yoga studio, people who are, have been longtime members, people who used to be members, but have gone away and they're not doing anything with it. And I feel it would take me one hour to set up some basic like email, automated email chains where it's like, hey, your 10 class pass is about to expire. Would you like to buy a new one or would you like to buy a membership? Or like, oh, you haven't been in three months. What's going on, you know? It's like the easiest thing and I know it would make them so much more money, right? And so mm -hmm. I was thinking this is an and help example more of a niche. It would help yeah. more people, yes. It would help that because it's like that's the, I, I just had to, sorry I had to interrupt there, but like no it would it would be better for the people who know they should be going and life got in the way and they didn't keep up with it. You don't have to nag them, but you can at least do them the service of like saying, hey, we'd love to see you again. And just a little bit of, just a little bit of like, we miss you. Yeah. And we know you would be better off if you kept coming and personalized specific to the person's situation. So much the better and be like, hey, you know, what's going on? I noticed you haven't been around. My karate school does this. And it, yeah. and it doesn't come across as like 
as like pushy or whatever, but that's a great niche because you'd be able to speak directly using the language that they use in their world. So if they right. don't, if they call like, what do they, do they call them? Students? What do they, they call, call them? Their students. Yeah. Students, right? Or yogis. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. Right. So the more lingo, the better. So like we're in this, you know, t- not to invoke Seth again, but like tribe, like we're in this tribe, we're in this circle yeah. of people who has this secret language where we talk about these things that that not everyone gets and we like it that way we're the cool kids we're the cool yoga kids so how do you create this sort of you know uh, if you hadn't picked yoga studios as that you would have said customers but yoga studios don't have customers they have students or yogis so you can use the language that's going to click with them and then when they're looking for someone to you know help with yoga studio marketing they type into google Right. And then they're going to get a bunch of like, you know, ads for drip or convert kit. Yeah. Or, or even just like random marketing agencies. You know, I a bunch of owners told me they just started talking to random marketing agencies, but they, they know nothing. They're like fitness marketing, but they don't know the specifics. Right. Right. So it just sets you way apart from the crowd. You become the obvious choice, you become the, the only choice they would consider because you have made something for them. It's a gift for, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like making a, a hand making a gift for a person that you know versus like sending a promotional pen to 500 people. Like everybody needs a pen. So it's just like, it's just not genuine when you send a right. promotional pen to 500 people. But if you craft something specifically for this, this group, then it's like it immediately sets you apart, which is critical. Like that's the critical piece. It allows you to help them for free at scale and, and, and for money not at scale, you know, or, or I suppose right. also at scale, but you can just get way more effective at delivering positive results, the better you know their business, their language, what their hopes, dreams, nightmares, fears, all that. Yeah. And so, so now we've established what a niche is and why, you know, you're a big fan of niching down when you, when you have a business, right? You have some skill, now you're going to apply it to a specific group of people, people with a specific need. And that's, that is one way to start a business. And it's clearly effective. You see it all around. It's, it's like why, you know, the barbershop example was great. When I lived in San Francisco, I went to a dude named Sal. He only offered men's haircuts of a particular style, but I loved it. And he charged a lot of money. I didn't care. It was great. He did such a good job. Um, but I also see a lot of people that have businesses that are highly successful who are not niche down. So one yep. of my favorite examples is some, there's, yeah, I'm in the productivity space. So you have a lot of productivity YouTubers that are big, like they have mm-hmm. millions of people. You know, mm-hmm. one example is a dude called Ali Abdal. He has like 1.6 million subscribers on YouTube. What does he do? Mm-hmm. He makes videos about whatever the bleep he wants to make videos about. It used to be about being a student in med school, about studying for exams. Then it then it's like, oh, my favorite um what are they called? The keyboards? They're like mechanical keyboards or something like that. You know, he just does videos on whatever now, but he got so big, right? That when he launches an online course, which happens to be about how to become good at YouTube, right? Uh, people will pay for it. So I tend to have this feeling a little bit when people tell you, oh, you got to choose a niche. Um, but wait, wait, do you have to? (laughs) He did. You said it yourself, medical students studying for exams. Or yeah, that's what he started with. Yeah, right. Well, niching down is all about starting. That's how you get started. So the metaphor that I use is a campfire. So like if you ever like, I don't know if you have a fireplace or something like that, you mm. don't start with a blowtorch on a giant log. Mm. That's your million, your million subscribers is a giant log. You don't start there. You don't start general. 
you can decide to blur your focus later if you have some other you just got this huge market and you know what their interests are and you can yeah. segment it down so i i'll bet you he doesn't just do a video on whatever the heck he wants i'll bet you he knows what people want because he's got this huge audience that he talks to or he reads right. the comments so he knows what people want and he's delivering it but what you're looking at is a business that's five or ten years down the road from the start same thing with Rami. He started off, same thing with Pat Flynn. They started yeah. off with these really, you know, pe- I'm listing people who have like hundreds of thousands or millions of people on their mailing list. <laughs> yeah, they're big. <laughs> they started off with something comically small, comically small and mm-hmm. hyper specific for one specific reader. And so to me, that's like, if, if you can bear with me with the analogy, but when you start a fire, you start with the teeniest little bit of kindling. Right. tinder and you throw some sparks on it and because you don't have a giant gas can you know that's a giant gas can is a super bowl ad just a right. giant marketing spend so yeah. if you if you don't have a giant gas can aka huge advertising budget you got to make little sparks on the most receptive smallest possible audience that you can think of and that's your kin that's your tinder really and once that goes from smoking to like poof, starts to fire you very carefully, one by one, place little pieces of kindling on top of it and make sure they catch without blowing out the flame. And then what happens once those catch? Then you put sticks on. Once you're, once you, you know, five years later, you're sitting back throwing giant logs into the fireplace and enjoying an adult beverage. Right. Fine, but that's ten years later. That's not day one. You don't start off writing, you know, recording YouTube videos about whatever the heck you feel like. You know, so you can decide. That, this is a big thing with, with niching. I'm glad you asked it because a lot of people have a similar thought process because they see all these examples of successful businesses that are right. totally general. That does not mean they started that way. There are, And there are other ways to, like maybe they never were niched at the beginning, but they did it the hard way. They did it yeah. by hustling. They did it by who knows what. Well, like they got maybe like a, professional film editing skills or something, right? You see people that are basically producing miniature documentaries. Yeah, so they they did. There's. I'm not saying there's only one path, but niching down is a gr- is a great path for someone who's a soloist or a really small firm. They haven't got a lot of extra time and money to like pour gasoline on some advertising campaign or you know whatever. And you just spark. You just this. If this spark, if you make a little teeny weeny spark and it hits the right people and it catches fire. In other words, they're spreading the message or they they email you say, oh my god, this came at just the right time then zoom, like believe that there are other people similar to them and that that spark will have the same effect on and start there. And then once you're, once you have a bigger audience and you're doing either podcasting or emailing, you're going to be getting conversations. You're going to have conversations with real life people, not you imagining like what people might want, but real life people saying, man, if you did a course on how to do your daily email, I would buy that. Or man, right. if you did a course on how to launch a podcast, I would buy that. Or if you did a group coaching thing, I would buy that. And it, and people would come to me you're like, I'm not a software developer, but do you think but, you can help me? Yeah. And I'd say, well, let's talk. Maybe I can. Yeah. So, yeah. so now that you've mentioned your, your newsletter twice, um, let's slide into the productivity space a little bit because I wanted cool. to ask you about that. Um, you've been writing a daily newsletter for a while. I know you also Since do lots of other stuff. Yes. Sorry? Since 2016. 
Yeah, and so you also do lots of other stuff, right? So you've mm-hmm. written a bunch of books. You run two podcasts. Clearly, you're a guest on other people's podcasts sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you have like a coaching program. You're running like live courses every now and then. Mm-hmm. So that's a ton of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we start here? How like how often do you write your daily newsletter? It sounds weird because the answer could be daily, but you may also be batching them. So so can you tell us about the workflow there? I've tried batching them, and I don't like it. So I just do them live. Yeah. Mm. So if you're on my mailing list, you'll get an email at at one in the morning. You'll get an email at eight in the morning. You might get an email at noon. There's no specific. I mean, you can guarantee that like, you know, over the course of the year, you're going to get at least 365 emails from me. But it's when I write them, I send them. And that's the way it works. Uh, It doesn't. I I just found it um, created more friction for me to batch them and so they would always go out at like nine in the morning or something right it created more friction for me and i am ruthless about removing friction from any of my especially daily routines but i'm ruthless about removing friction from all my routines so that i can scale and create leverage without having to hire a bunch of employees yeah so yeah so So daily i I do yeah i do it you know basically every 24 hours or so i'll write another email and publish it immediately Right. Okay. And so this is something that you do every day, but there's all the other stuff that you've got. Maybe you can get into that a little bit. How do you decide, like, what are you going to work on today or within your day? How do you decide mm-hmm. now is the right time to write my daily loot newsletter versus mm-hmm. now is the right time to pop into my Slack to chat to my students or to whatever? Yep. I'm not real good with rigid schedules. I've always been real um, sort of unemployable that way. It doesn't work <laughs> for me. But what I do have that is rigid is that I've got a daily, a recurring daily to-do list. So it's this list of things that I do every day, like come hell or high water. Yeah. And and it and I tick them off and then at midnight they all come back. And in the next 24 hours, I got to check them all off again. So, uh yeah, that's that's my that's and I know I know the result of sticking with that every day produces results on the outside that makes it seem like I have like some team of people or I've got a clone or something. Yeah. But really it's just like a teeny little bit every day is produces a incredible, I mean, seven times more output than weekly. And most right. people don't even do anything weekly marketing wise. Maybe right. they blog once a month or like every blog post starts with, geez, it's been a while since I've blogged. <laughs> it's so cringe. You know? Yeah. It's like, so, but it's, you see it all the time. Yeah. So just merely doing this, it's like, you can't floss 365 times before your annual dental appointment. Like that's not going to work. You have to floss every day if you want it to produce results. So certain things are like flossing. My whole marketing approach, my whole marketing philosophy is based on a gardener philosophy, not a hunter philosophy. Hunters are the like, the always be closing span. Not that you, you can be a good hunter, but, but generally the hunters are like trying to buff up their quarterly numbers by spamming 10,000 people on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I'm not like that. I think more long term, and I'd rather plant a garden and tend to it daily. That's that's my daily emailing list. That's me tending to the garden every day for you know five years straight now, and it reliably produces results if you just keep doing it. I'm not going to make that mistake again of like, oh, I don't want to write books or speak anymore, so I'm just going to like do nothing. Yeah, and so you've got your daily routine right your, or your mm-hmm. daily list of tasks it's not, anyway. yeah it's not it's definitely not a routine because i've got two little kids and the schedule is always mm-hmm. changing and we homeschool them so there's like always a lot going on and the dog and you know all this stuff uh, but yeah i just get that stuff done and if you know if i don't 
do it by midnight. I stay up late and do it, or I do it twice the next day or something like that. So I'm like always caught up. And so if we picture Jonathan walking to his desk in the morning, maybe after making sure that his kids are, you know, have gotten started for the day or whatever, right? What, what do we see? How do you decide what to do first? You know, how do you prioritize? Because prioritization is a big topic, right? We can talk how you do it daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly, whatever. But how do you do it just like on a day-to-day basis? What do you do first? Uh, it's always different. I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I guess mm. I guess it starts with what are my appointments for the day? Mm. You know, so I look at my calendar. I try not to have more than three appointments a day, two or one or none is, is ideal. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, cause then I, you know, I can do whatever I feel like doing, honestly. It's like, Oh, I feel like checking into the Slack rooms or I feel like writing my email. The email one especially happens. It's much easier for me to write the email when I strike at the moment of inspiration. So I kind of yeah. let that one float throughout the day. Yeah. And a lot of time, and that's a lot, if you're on my list, a lot of times they come like late at night because I've kind of chilled out. I think back over the day and I'm like, oh, that conversation I had with somebody would make a great email. And so they tend to come late at night. That's when I'm most creative. Um, I've always been kind of a night owl. So yeah, so, so the appointments, obviously I show up for the appointments, whether it's a podcast interview or like a coaching accountability call. Uh, and then in between that, I'm like, well, how much time do I have? And then I look at the list. I'm like, oh, I can crank out a hundred pushups. Like, like I've got stuff on the list that's not work related. It's just, I don't separate between life and, and work or home and work. It's just like stuff I have to do every day. Floss, hundred pushups, hundred sit-ups, practice karate forms, send my daily email, check on Marty's thing, you know, like just, so there's this list that, uh, I just get to when I get to it. I've got a co-host on on the Business of Authority podcast, Rochelle. She is not like that at all. She needs to know what her day looks like tomorrow, and she's going to block it out. And she's religious about keeping appointments with herself. And I know this works for a lot of people. A lot of people like to get into that sort of daily routine, and they know like in the morning, I'm much better. I can write better in the morning, so I'm going to do my daily thing in the morning. That works too. It's just not my style. I've always been more of an improviser. I'm so glad you brought this up and especially also your co-host Rochelle because I know a lot of people listening are going to be offended now. They're going to be like, what the hell, Jonathan? Like, you get no time blocking is the only way to be too. Like, Cal Newport would be offended as hell listening to you, right? The deep work guy, because that's like he's got this time blocking planner where you're like saying from 1030 to noon, I'm going to do this. But the, the funny thing is, right? So I work the same way that you do. Like, I do not like to have too many appointments. I do not like to say in advance, I'm going to work on it from this to this. Also, for creativity reasons, like you're saying, um, like sometimes you just get the urge to do something and it's much easier it flows more naturally for me to just do what I feel like doing in the moment rather than like no I told myself I would record a video now even though but then in the moment if I'm feeling cranky I'm gonna be cranky in my video you know so like I don't want to do that um but I think a lot of people get stuck because it requires being in tune with what you want and for a lot of people I think that's already a problem like being in tune with your emotions being aware of like what is your current emotional state for a lot of people is hard right Mm -hmm. like especially the more I think the more, what is it, the analytical brain? Is it the right brain? Whatever. Yeah. Those kind of people um, often very much like they, they want like a list of things and they want everything hammered down, kneeled down. Um, so so is this subconscious for you or are you actively asking yourself, hey, like what am I in the mood to do now? Or is it really just like whatever strikes, boom. Well, in, in defense of Cal Newport and all folks who do like the time, and Rochelle and people who who do respond to that, like it makes sense to me. It just doesn't work for me. 
Like I yeah. always end up being like, oh, well, something came up like constantly. Something came up. Oh, I'll just have to move this to later. And just like constantly shuffling my calendar around. It just didn't. It just doesn't work for me. If it works for you, great, great. It's probably it's probably less stressful. But for me, it just didn't work. So and and I again, to Cal's point, if we can speak for him, saying you're just going to do stuff when you feel like it is also bad. Right. Totally. So I'll, there are days when I'm like, I don't feel like doing this, but I'll just like the fact that I don't do it at noon. I don't care that I didn't do it at noon, but I will do it. And if I don't do it, I've got to do it twice tomorrow. So I might as well just do it now. Like I have literally woken up from a dead sleep and been like, I forgot to do this thing. I don't want to break my streak. So there is, there is rigidity to my structure. It's just not a time-based rigidity. It's a frequency rigidity. So like the, the frequency is these, this list of 15 or so things needs to happen every day, you know, and whatever, do it. And, you know, they're, they're, I'm very careful and I'm also very careful about what I add to that list because I know that if I, even if there's one thing on that list that I break, that the streak is broken, it makes yeah, me feel bad. Feel I yeah. feel shitty about the whole thing. So I'm really careful about what I add to the list. Um, but yeah, uh, I think the, the time-based stuff, I'm much better at adhering to showing up for something at a time if there's another person involved. I'm really good at that. Right. So, but I just can't have too many of those things. And I don't respect the ones that I schedule with myself, as they say. Right. So the, the to-do list is the solution for me. And the streak, keeping up the streak is the thing that keeps me sucked in. And I, I first learned about this from uh, interviewing James Clear about his book, Atomic Habits. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, it's in his book. I read his book first, but um, James Clear has a great book about this called Atomic Habits that has lots of different strategies for doing tiny things to produce really outsized results based on the kind of things that work for you instead of just like saying like, you know, what works for Cal must work for everyone. I, I'm so happy that you're emphasizing this point because it's something that so many people need to hear. Like if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. It doesn't mean yeah. that you're the problem, it's right? It could working. just be this yeah. is not the right. Like, so don't feel like it should work. Nothing mm-hmm. should work. It works or it doesn't work. Um, and, so, and so what does work for you, another thing you mentioned is mixing your personal and your business stuff, right? And so again, it's the same thing for me. And I think for a lot of people, that's different too. They're very much like my working hours are nine to five, you know, where I don't think of it that way. Um, and I was curious to, uh, about this. When Do you set goals for yourself? If so, can you walk us through the process for that a little bit? And mm-hmm. do you separate personal goals and work goals? Or do you just like, this is what I want to do with my life. You know, let's pursue it. Yeah, that's a great question. I should probably have a better answer. Like, I should have a really specific answer to this or detailed answer. I have a, I have a basic answer to it. One is that, that at the highest level... I know that I enjoy helping other people. Like my absolute favorite thing is when when I say something to somebody and they're like mind blown. Ah. Like, that's my absolute favorite. If I if I could just continue to pay my mortgage and like keep shoes on my kids' feet, I don't like I have no financial goals, none. Hmm. My my only if I had a financial goal, it would be to not like regress in my lifestyle. Right. It's not like I'm not one of those people who needs to have ten million dollars in the bank or whatever. Like and a boat. It doesn't motivate. Yeah, it just doesn't motivate me at all. I'm not a status guy with almost anything. Um, so that stuff has no effect on me. I I would much rather have, you know, ten thousand people at my funeral than a boat. So yeah. that that is a complete complete high level motivator. I'm the oldest of five, so maybe that has something to do with it. Who knows? 
So that's one thing. Um, my specific sort of business goal is like I am on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. If my tombstone said, this guy actually destroyed the timesheet, like <laughs> I would be like, that would be great. I would be super happy about that. But it is, yeah. it's strictly a business goal. But I do think it has larger implications for society writ large. Like there's actually, there's something very big happening there um, if, if it could actually be accomplished. And uh, what does that mean? So goals, so personal goals, personal goals are probably, I should probably have better definition of my personal goals. It's more like feel fulfilled and I know what fulfills me, you know. But like that, for karate, you know, because I, I know you do karate, for example, mm -hmm. are you like, I want to be able to do this thing by such yeah, and such time? Some, not by like a that? date, not by a date, but hmm. but like, you know, my background is in, in I've got, a, you know, I'm old, I'm like 52, so I have like f at least four different lives so far in terms of like eras. Um, and one of them was I was super huge into martial arts as a teenager, uh, got mm -hmm. injured, never then went to college. So I wasn't near the school anymore. never got my black belt and it always ate at me. And when I had kids and I started them in karate, I got the bug again. And I was like, oh, I could use some more exercise anyway. And this looks like really, I want to go get out on the floor and kick stuff. So I got my black belt at age 50 after 35 years of wishing I had my black belt, which was completely life altering. And... I don't know. I don't, the goal thing, there's something about, and, and James Clear talks about this, other habits people talk about this. It's fine to have a goal to kind of decide what direction to point yourself. But if you're thinking about the goal every day as if it's going to be a motivation, I that doesn't tend to, I don't think that works for lots of people. I think lots of people that does not work for. And what actually works is, okay, there's a goal. There's a place I'd like to go. It's not the right place or the wrong place. It's just a place, one of many perhaps, that I would like to go. And then you come up with a daily habit that will probably get you closer to that thing. And pick a daily habit that's probably going to get you closer to that thing that you enjoy doing. So for me, I could have picked a thousand other like physical fitness goals. I could have been like, oh, I need to have 16-inch biceps or something like that. And that would have caused me to do different daily activities. But the, the black belt thing was a, a lifelong regret that I was able to repair or, uh, you know, uh, obliviate or whatever. That's a Harry yeah. Potter term. But yeah, so, but it never felt like I said, a, well, I guess I did. I knew where it was going. I knew when I joined the school, I knew where it was going to end up. It was going to end up with me becoming a black belt. Right. Like, or die trying. So, so I guess, but it's very, that piece is very subconscious for me. It's very obvious to me. I, ha, I think I have, I talk to hundreds of people all the time about stuff like this. And I think it's one of my superpowers is just knowing what I want in the next 10 years. I, it, it really, I, I can't explain it. I just know. Like when I, the first time I saw electric guitar, I was like, I'm, that is what I do now. I'm playing that forever. And for 10 years, 15 years, I was a professional, like I did all the things to become a professional musician. I got my undergrad from Berkeley. And, and then after a while, I stopped liking it. So I switched to something else. And the something else was already boiling up. I already knew what the something else was going to be when I finally got sick of playing in clubs every night. Yeah, but I think it's clarifying, right? When you know what it is that you really want, it's so clarifying for the action steps that you're going to take. And so whether those are the daily habits or whatever else. So I, I like to talk to people about goals. It's like, okay, even, even if your goal is not the sharpest defined goal ever, if it's not a smart goal or a smarter goal or whatever, which I always find really cringe, um, 
if you can articulate why it's important to you, then you're then you're on the right track. So you could tell yourself, hey, I want to get a black belt in karate. And why? That's because that's something that you wanted to do earlier in your life. You didn't get to it, you know, so there's like a meaning you've attached to it. But then it also becomes very clarifying for your decisions. It's like, you know, should you skip t- uh, today's karate lesson or should you go? No, you should go because like there's this real thing that's going to be really important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an emotional thing too. So you're saying it's like subconscious for you, but at least at least you're aware of it now when we're talking. I feel like for a lot of people, this digging is something that they need to actively put some effort into to understand, right? And often there's some psychological need or whatever, some emotion people want to feel. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that um, and then we'll wrap up. So... Okay. Um, one thing that that I read on your website is it said one of your proudest achievements in life was organizing a fundraiser for an uninsured friend who needed stomach cancer treatments, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and you said that's one of your proudest achievements in life, and so I found that really interesting because it it suggests that pride is a some is a feeling that lasts, right? Is a feeling um, that motivates. So I wanted to get your thoughts on whether pride is a good feeling for people to shoot for, whether it is in the work that they do or when they're setting their goals. Um, is that a good way to think about things? Well, that's interesting. I, di- I, didn't think that, I didn't think that hard about my word choice in that sentence. And now that you bring it up, I don't particularly think pride is a great motivator. Um, mm, now you got me really thinking. I, I almost want to change that word, but I don't know what to change it to. <laughs> It's kind of like the thing about it is it's just like it's just like everything else. Like there's just a thing I know about myself, which is general self-awareness. I'm not saying I'm the right way, but having awareness out of what spreads your toes, like what really lights you up. For me, it is helping other people like to have tangible, demonstrable results for somebody else. For me, it's like, look, if you can figure that out, you never have to worry about money. Like money is a side effect of value creation. And you're not gonna, you can't create value on Mars. No one's on Mars. You can't, like, like the environment's not a problem on Venus because no one's there. You know, you're not, like, you don't see people like trying to clean up the, the Venusian atmosphere because people aren't there. So that it's not a problem. The only place where problems exist is in people. That's where problems are. And like, you can, like, if you disagree with me, think about it. No problem exists where there is no people. Think about that. So, okay. So if, if my whole thing is problem solving, it's going to happen in the other person. It's not right. like I'm going to have some ideal solution that just exists, exists in a vacuum. And I'm like pleased as punch that I came up with the better mousetrap, <laughs> but there's no one to sell it to. Like think right. of a zombie movie where like Will Smith is like walking around in like an abandoned earth. What do you do? There's, you don't know what to do. There's nothing to do. It's all about being in service of others. And I'm not a religious guy. But it is about helping other people. Yeah. So that that is probably the most I've ever helped some. That that was the most I felt like I ever had a meaningful impact on somebody else's life. I didn't have kids yet then and that sort of thing, but that was gigantic. And the thing, the thing, and the reason I even bring it up is because anybody could have done that. I didn't do anything genius. I was like a half-assed musician that pulled together a show, like, hey, let's get the band back together and like sell raffle tickets. It was like poorly executed at best but it worked you know so i overcame all the perfectionism things that people sometimes struggle with and all the and like the well why can't i do it like like somebody's got to do something and then you look in the mirror like oh maybe it needs to be me so like all of that stuff the pick yourself stuff and the not perfectionist stuff and like focusing on results not 
you know, focusing on outcomes, not inputs. All of that stuff is all wrapped in delivering demonstrably good benefits to somebody's life. And she's still alive now, how many years later, you know, whatever. And that, that whole thing is uh, encapsulated in that experience. So, you know, yeah, I, I don't really think through this stuff. I don't think through the personal stuff as much as you're asking me about, but I guess if I was going to try and deconstruct it on the spot, that's where I, what I would say. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was a great insight into why this was meaningful to you, right? And, and I think the fact that it was meaningful to you also provided so much motivation. Like you're saying, you don't care about like, do I know how to do this or do I not? It doesn't matter. You're just going to go ahead and do it. And I think yeah. that's an attitude that a lot of people can benefit from. Um, and it'll come more easily when you have goals that you really care about and meaning. Anyway, um, this has been a really fun conversation, Jonathan. Um, cool, same here. If people like some of your ideas or all of your ideas, where can they find you? Is there anything in particular that you would like them to check out? Uh, I mean, I've got a page on my website. Usually I send people to valuepricingbootcamp.com and they go there and you get like a six-day email course about value pricing specifically, which we did talk about at the beginning. But in general, I think uh, if if that isn't what you're interested in, then probably go over to um, my website. There's a page, jonathanstark.com slash free that has a whole bunch of a little bit more random. It's a little bit of a yard sale. There's like a whole bunch of different things that you can kind of pick and choose from that are on different topics. And one of the sections is a whole bunch of like pre-written Google searches for, for different kinds of topics. So if you want to learn more about the value, com- or, you know, the why conversation, click that link. If you want to learn more about product-based services, click that link. If you want to learn more about productivity, then click that link. And it'll just do an automatic Google search for you. You can see all the articles I've written about it. Yeah, and and I will heartily endorse visiting Jonathan's website, regardless of whether you're, you know, a software developer who sells services or someone totally else. There's just, I feel like the ideas are really applicable, and you know, including you thinking of marketing and stuff, even for people who may never have thought about these things before. So, thanks so much, Jonathan, for uh, coming on the show. Anytime. Yeah, I loved it. Hey, if you like the show, subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. We'd also love it if you rated the show on Apple Podcasts. To find out more about Peter or about today's guest, check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of How They Get Stuff Done.